You know I like to take you all over the place. I know that I've been everywhere, but I'm now going to Nigeria and then back to England. I have a fascinating person with me now, um, a gentleman who has got a story and a half to tell, who has won countless awards, who has gone through a lot of pain. He is sitting here looking magnificent, love the outfit, and when I was his age... I would have worn clothes like that. Joel, hello. Hello. Welcome to Nigeria. And, and Happy New Year. <laughs> Indeed. And Nigeria has moved, in fact, to Bull Street. We're in Bull Street in Liverpool. <laughs> Absolutely. No, first, uh, Joel, Noel. Who's Noel? I, I was somebody I met the other night. Anyway, Joel, <laughs> tell me, what's your Nigerian name? My Nigerian name is Nkonyaswa. It's a mouthful, but it simply loosely translates to my own is desirable. Uh, so where did Joel come from? Uh, English name. Uh, the influence of, you know, uh, imperialism. No. So it's still, it's still there. My lexicon, English. Um, my, you know, Deminor, very, a lot of people say, oh, you're very English. I'm like, oh, am I? But well, relics of empire. So what's your full name? My full name is Joel Mordi, um, but Nkonye, and then there's Bobby, but that's, it's only two people who really... Lots of names. <laughs> Let's start with the story. First of all, tell us where you grew up in Nigeria. So I grew up in Delta State, the best state, by the way, in Nigeria. I grew up in Delta State in Nigeria, an amazing state um, in the south of, you know, Nigeria. Um, so, yeah, it was fun. It was great growing up in Delta State. I, I find it, like, very cathartic, and I have fond memories of, you know, little town Agbor, and then there was Asaba, and, you know, all of that, and it was fun. Now, big family or small family? Um, Two families. So, like you, we share a lot in common adoption so i've got my original family my maternal mom in agua delta state but i've got like my adoptive parents in asaba delta state where i spent like most of my years um so yeah it was duality so we're both adopted yes so we're both gay we're yes. both adopted <laughs> yes. but a different age how old are you i'm 26 now i'm 77 so we've lived two different worlds and two different lives Indeed. oh my word how did you cope with finding out first of all that you were adopted um i was already like somewhere you know i was about what six seven when i moved so i i, I knew and then they gave me that leeway to always go back you know to my mom and you know all of that so i had the best of both worlds humble beginnings and you know a a family of means so there was this duality so I, I come from i always tell people best of both worlds um so yeah it, it was fun i never felt out of place at any time well not until i found out about my sexuality the big secret i was always the elephant in the room now that's interesting you say so joel you came from a very poor background mm -hmm. and then into money mm -hmm. now that's interesting too because you have now had a taste so you know what struggling's about but then you had a good say so it's given you a good grounding it has it, you know it's kept, kept me grounded um i'm always always hence the non-profit to whom much is given much is required so i'm always you know altruistic in my ways all the time because i've been given a lot to be honest in all honesty i have have you still got both families alive yeah yeah so they're both in nigeria and alive um yes my parents are very well alive but my dad you know, my actual dad, he, he passed on when I was really young. So it's just my mom and then obviously my adopted parents. Right. 
So, when did you discover or when did you sense you were gay? Um, in hindsight, I did sense really early because I'd, you know, go on and listen to ABBA and I, I, I fancied, you know, the man, but it was innocence. You just didn't know what it was. But now looking at it, I was like, how comes I was, you know, always enamored by the men, never the women. And in secondary school, I had, you know, started developing feelings and it was never towards, you know, the opposite gender. I'd fancy men, but obviously it was my secret because I felt very out of place in Nigeria at the time. Still now, it's it's very much a taboo. When you go to centers of, you know, learning, they talk about that and it's never in a positive light. And the same with religious, you know, gatherings. It's, you know, we're anything but the children of God. How did both your sets of parents take it? I never came out to, you know, any of them. Like I said, I was always the elephant in the room. I was different according to, you know, the... the my voice, the way, you know, I'd carry myself and the things I was interested in. Many people my age, men or young boys, they weren't interested in the things I was interested in. So they kind of like questioned, but for the most part, they tried to curtail my excesses. So impressions, they would say, no, boys don't play with pink and, you know, all of the, these, these traditional things in Nigeria. Um, but you know, that meant I had to always, you know, chip away, always read the room, always try to confirm, always, you know, don't do too much, in quote. Um, so that really messed me up. What is life like in Nigeria for gay people? It's one of the worst places to be LGBT+. It's one of the worst places to be gay because, you know, there's such intolerance in Nigeria we've got religion, which is very, Nigeria is a very heavily religious country. Um, we've got Islam to the north and Christianity to the south. And when these two unite, it's always, you know, hate and vitriol and intolerance towards the LGBT plus community. And even in familial, you know, um, gatherings, it's again, sometimes, if not all the time, the centerpiece of discourse and it's usually negative and then we move on again to religious gatherings the same thing so in nigeria we were caught between a rock and a hard place the lgbt plus community is there a big underground gay community i got to find out only here in england about you know the gay scene in nigeria because everywhere is not lagos everywhere is not london everywhere is not you know new york but Apparently, there is a thriving gay scene that I never knew about because even Pride in Nigeria, you'd see just me and the flags and all of that. And I think my last message was, if you're out there, I was tired. I've never, I grew up not knowing any LGBT plus person. Imagine the tragedy. Um, and this was what, 2000? Um, so it, it's, it's, it's still this thing where everywhere is not Lagos. If you've just joined us, I'm talking to Joel, who fled from Nigeria, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, so there is a, a, an underground gay community who must live in fear. At all times. Um, and it, it, it's, it's, such, it's so bad, we pay the ultimate price. So there's dualities between the past and the present, and it's still people hunting LGBT plus people, killing them um, or killing us. And we're still paying the ultimate price with our blood. And 
bullying is such a thing in centers of learning. Bullying is, is, is so rife. Mm. You are the butt of jokes at all times. Students are dropping out of school just because of that. Because if a center of learning is supposed to, and I say this because of my nonprofit, we work especially with young people in schools. And what we've seen, it's, it's worse than even my time. Mm. See, Joel, everything you've just said, I lived through that because it was a criminal offence to be a homosexual. And we didn't have an LGBT. We didn't have anybody. We had no one. The queer bashers were out. Uh, the thugs were out. Everything you've just said, we lived in fear. And the other thing was, you could never tell anyone because once you said, I'm a homosexual, it was out there forever. Did you feel that when you discovered you were gay? I never, it was the ultimate scene, knowing that, you know, I had attraction to a same sex. Um, so I would never, ever speak about it, not until 2019, when I came out to my girls, my friends, and then obviously people who work with my nonprofit, and then came about Pride, and they became allies. Um, so not until 2019, before I came out, and then Pride happened. You fled Nigeria. When you fled, and tell us about what you, or why you fled, but when you fled, what happened with your parents? Did, did you tell them you were going, or, or did you camouflage it? What did you do? Well, to my maternal, my mom, I did tell her what had happened, but to my other parents, I never did, because we've had this conversation couple of times where they say, Joe, are you, are you, are you gay? You don't have a girlfriend. You don't have, you know, all of that. And, you know, people talk, your monarism, you're strutting, you know, all of these things. Are you gay? And I, I denied it twice. I told them, no, I'm not, you know, I'm just, you know, all of this. But I, after, after pride, I had to come to terms and tell my mother. How did your birth mother take it? She was scared for me. Um, she was just scared for me because she knew what danger and the manner I had gone to the National Assembly to do all of that. You've gone to different locations, but you went on to the National Assembly where the law was made. If you don't know about the National Assembly, it's our version of the parliament. So we've got the Senate and the House of Representatives, and this is where laws are, you know, enacted, where laws are made. And we went there to campaign against the repeal of this draconian law hunting LGBT plus people as much as even if you're perceived to be gay. Where did you get the strength from to do that? It was the pain. The strength came from years and years of pain, of repression, of oppression. Um, there were even times where I was in the sunken place, trying to, you know, the S word. But even more painful was the fact that I saw students, and it took me back to my own time, being bullied for being different, for being perceived. And I was like, I cannot believe this is happening again. But what has been put in place? Nothing. So I was like, you know what? It's time. I have to come out. And then we started safeguarding. We created a program within my nonprofit and started safeguarding, talking to young people. They started coming to us. And I had something my rainbow boots, Dr. Martins. And that was just a staple. We were doing, talking about the SDGs, making it, you know, actionable for them. But when my people see me, they would come to me at all times. And you would not believe the sheer number 
of people that would come, boys and girls. It's interesting you say that because before I was on radio, I was a working comic, a broadcaster, I was doing everything. Mm -hmm. And I dressed, and you are beautifully dressed today, I dressed like you. That was me coming out, me coping, but I could never say the word, I'm a homosexual. I could never say it, but I did that. And then when I went on stage as a comic, working around the country, my act was very outrageous. My mum used to say, ah, he's fun isn't he bless him he's outrageous but she didn't understand when i came out to her she didn't understand sadly but that's how i dealt with it so we have run parallel but i never had your strength to go to parliament and say hang on enough's enough luckily the law was changed what was the day you realized that you had to leave nigeria before i answer that i really love what you said pete your rebuttal was your outfit outfit is advocacy it's 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 come to be you know we as a community we've come this far especially because of the flamboyant ones i think you know when we talk about lgbt rights i think about trans people the people who who dared to be themselves in the face of adversity in the in the weak you know thick of things when it was very very bad things were really you know outrageous came you know the the you know um wh what was it called in new york the Ain stonewall all the people who've come before us um but yeah when we did pride we had someone in the inside that told us joe you and your crew they saw you guys on the, the cctv camera how many of you there were in national assembly when we started there were about 13 of us But as, because it was a whole month and two days, Pride started in uh, September 1st of 2019 and ended uh, 2nd of October of the same year. So we started and people started falling off, started leaving, you know, the whole thing because they were scared. And by the time we went to the National Assembly, there was just three of us. Three. Just three. That's a hell of a pride. Three. <laughs> just three people. <laughs> and when you see me, it's just me. I was the face of pride. I was the voice of pride. It was now just me. And I think that's why we succeeded. Because we were very, we were there, but people did not think much of it. It was just this person, the camera, and then this yeah. person interviewing. So it, it, it was all of that. And then came, you know, the call the call from this person inside the National Assembly to say, Joel, what you guys did, they're coming for you. They found you via the CCTV and you have to find a place to go. And that was when I knew everything is, you know, it's not smooth, smooth sailing anymore. I had to take cover. And that was a week after I had to find somewhere to stay. And then I told my mom. And I so then you told your mom? Yeah. And how did she take that? Yeah, she, 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 she didn't understand even the word gay. When I told her, mom, I'm gay, and this is what happened. She was like, what do you mean? What happened? And I told her, I had to explain to her. She immediately became worried for me. And she was like, you have, you have to find your passport. You right. have to leave. What made you pick England? Um, England, I've been here before. I studied in England prior and left only in 2018. And obviously, <clears throat> obviously I had other passport, my, you know, Canadian passport, my visa, my, you know, um, American. But England, it just made sense. Go, just, just run. I didn't think much. Just grab, you know, a ticket and come back to England. Because again, 
I was familiar with the terrain. I studied here before. So it, it just made sense, run anywhere. But England felt safer. That's before we talk about what happened to you when you arrived in England. When you were at school in England, mm-hmm. was life good there? It was. It was it was good. I saw again dualities, a different, you know, different life. As a student in England, Nottingham versus, you know, now an asylee. It's two separate, two separate worlds. So you came to England. Did you think it was going to be easy to get in? Or do you think there was going to be problems? And in fact, you had problems, didn't you? I did. Um, I was stunned. I was really surprised uh, by the welcome. It was anything but pleasant. Um, I had told them what had happened. And immediately after, I was detained um, in a place I now know as Hammondsworth, the detention centre next to Heathrow. Um, so there's Hammondsworth and then there's Collingbrook adjacent. Um, and the things that happened there, horror. It, it, I find it, you know, major PTSD talking about, you know, th- those experiences, those nights and the times there. I felt like a wolf amongst sheep. I was thrown there. And I remember them telling me, you're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. The boots, the everything, my rainbow, they, they knew I was different. And I did, in fact, protest, you know, my detention. I was like, please don't, I don't, it doesn't sound right. I don't want to go there. I don't want to, please let me go. But everything fell on deaf ears. They kept on telling me, you'll be fine. And, you know, they tore my luggage, everything, they unpacked everything. And they, they kept on seeing things that suggest I'm a member of a social group, in my case, LGBT+. But they still didn't take that to account. And then they kept on telling me, you'll be fine. They kept me there. And it was nothing good. How long were you there for? Five nights. But that was five nights. Too long. Five nights felt like forever. Every minute counted. People hounding you, looking at you, the heckles, the name calling, the card call. It was many things. And in front of the officers... And these were people these were the from teenies. other... Co- yes, yeah, so they weren't English people. These were people trying to get into the country. Many different people. It was many different people with many different stories. Um, maybe most of them want to be removed. Most of them maybe they might have committed minor crimes and they're being kept there. So it was just many diff- a melting pot of many different you know, people. Tell me how you felt when you knew you were being released. Um, so I, I didn't know I was going to be released. Um, they just came out on the fifth night or the morning of the fifth, you know, night. And then they said, who's Joe? And I was like, it's me. And then they were like, you're being let go. And that was that. So you're in our country. You've arrived. You came from Nigeria. You've left two moms behind. You fled because your life was in danger. You had a dreadful experience for five days. Where did you go from there? How did you start to build a life? It was um, me being taken to a certain place, again, without any safeguarding. And it was a hostel or a hotel, somewhere embarking, and again, homophobia in there. So I was supposed to be moved to, um, I think, Cardiff, but I reached out to a non-profit immediately after my release from detention and I reached out to AKT, the Albert Kennedy Trust, the LGBT plus homeless charity for young people. And they told me, we'll come get you. And in fact, they did at the meek of time because my driver from home office was there and then the driver from um, a certain company came and, you know, picked me. And I was like, 
who's from who. And then this was obviously from AKT and I had to go from there. And that's how I started, you know, being housed in hostels. I started moving hostels, courtesy of AKT. Um, they, they did their best. Now, all through the interview so far, you've mentioned non-profit. You've said this several times. Explain what you're talking about. Um, Non-profits are charities uh, that are specific for certain causes. Um, My non-profit in Nigeria is catered towards the, you know, localizing the SDGs to young people and making it actionable for them across schools. And we are the biggest charity doing that in Nigeria to date. So let me stop you there. You're running a charity in Nigeria from England. Yes. I I founded a non-profit back in 2015 um, when the SDGs were, you know, the ushering of the SDGs post the MDGs. So... After that, I started my non-profit. So how is that um, paid for? Um, it's very uh, self-funded internally. And we've got people who, you know, from long-standing relationships, people who donate to us, you know, from time to time. But for the most part, it's self-funded. And, you know, we do so much with so little. Right. So you're now living in London. You've got uh, yourself started to get settled. You now have a huge campaign that started to win awards. Tell us about this journey you went on. I think, you know, um, adversity built character and I've been through a lot. And my backstory from Nigeria I've been doing, I've been in the development space for a while now. So all of that have culminated into recognitions, you know, triumph from adversity and all of these things. So it's this duality where, yes, I'm going through a lot still, but I'm still being recognized and, you know, going into like spaces that I otherwise wouldn't have you know, been ushered in if it wasn't for the work that I've been doing, even in Nigeria and now here, because I'm affiliated with a lot of non-profits, Safe Passage, Limo, Breaking Barriers, AKT. Um, so I'm a young What is person, AKT? The Albert Kennedy Trust. Which is what? Which is the LGBT plus homeless charity for young people. So how do you financially live yourself? Right now I'm studying. Um, so there's, you know, help from the government. Uh, you know, a few times here and there and also help from, you know, university as well. So so yeah. that's how you live. So you're studying... Right what, now. Yeah, what are you studying? A global development. And what do you want to do from that? I think it tells... It pays homage to my story. I've already started doing something. So again, development space, making a difference in people's life. However, I can with my voice, but especially, especially my actions, taking from my own story and, you know... I already have, I know, you know, pain is a good thing. If making lemons out of, you know, um, lemonade out of lemons um, and, you know, helping people is what I'm all about. So I really, really want to, like, get lost doing good. How have you been accepted in this country? In a way, yes. And no, at the same time. Um, Yes, because I've met a lot of good people. I'm only standing because of people like yourself and, you know, other people that I've met. But there's also the other side of people who are intolerant and then they give you the stare and I have to look over my shoulder from time to time. And not only that, it goes even physical attacks, you know, and I was made homeless from housemates not being tolerant to the fact that I'm different in their words. Um, so, and minus that, it's just been many, many different things. Again, case in point, the, my experience in the detention center, it hasn't, you know, been good smooth sailing for me. And looking at the community as a whole, I see that it's even worse 
for a lot of people, sometimes I say the silver lining for me is I live to tell my story, but not many people have had that, you know, chance. Um, sadly, they yeah. paid the ultimate price. Now, putting the gay side of your life to one side for a moment, how have you coped in England with racism? Sadly, yes, I have. And it's been institutional racism where they tell me, oh, well, we, we don't accept your foundation or your degree here. But on the one hand, on the other hand, they accept someone else who's of a certain demographic, my white counterpart. I've got the better results. I've got, you know, everything. I'm, you know, young. But they didn't accept me, but they accepted for the same course in the same university, a certain Russell group in, in London. I've got to ask the question. And people are going to go, and I'm talking to Joel, who is from Nigeria and now lives here. Are you ready for this one, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and everybody out there? Why are you walking backwards? Okay, my big, big project. Um, so, yeah, in, 20, in 2014, I discovered someone called Plenty Lawrence Wingo who travelled backwards um, during his time in 1932 slash 1933. So he, he travelled backwards for 18 months. But before then, I saw a music video that I, was really, uh, that I really loved, Enigma, Return to Innocence. So it was all this thing in reverse. So... As a young child, I would do this thing walking backwards. And I was like, and then I Googled the, the Guinness Book of Records at the time. It was Guinness Book of Records. Now it's Guinness World Records. And then I was like, has anyone done this walking backwards? And da, 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 da. That's how I discovered plenty. So reverse pedestrianism or retro pedestrianism or reverse uh, walking is where you, you simply walk backwards. Um, Hang on. Is that what it's called? Retro pedestrianism. Wow, that's a word and a half. Yeah, it's a mouthful. <laughs> let's, let's stick to walking backwards. Yeah, walking backwards or reverse pedestrianism. Yeah, it's all these things where you just walk backwards for however long. So now I'm doing it. But uh, what a lesser known fact, people don't know that there are lots of health benefits to that. Um, and I could go on and on, you know, cardio, which I suffer from, you know, heart palpitations. So I have to like take on that. Balancing, it does help. I manage, obviously, mental health is a thing. So if you walk backwards, it does help. Um, a lot. But what's the purpose of it? Now, the purpose is to challenge a lot of, you know, backwards thinking, backward laws, policies, and it's kind of like depicts where we are the, on a, you know, global stage, where we are globally, and not just, you know, in Nigeria, where obviously LGBT plus rights, what's that? We're not, we're second thoughts. Um, so it's, it's trying as much as we, I can to show where we are are we backwards as a nation, England? And we can say, you know, we're seeing a lot of regression to what was once progress. In the LGBT plus community, we're seeing the witch hunting of our trans, you know, brothers and sisters. Um, conversion therapy is still a thing. Sadly, even here in England, in Nigeria, it's even worse. Um, so all of these things coming together is pushing me, you know, to do this thing. And now I'm classed not only, I'm not only black, I'm not only gay, I'm not only, now I'm a refugee. So it also depicts or attempts to depict the perilous journeys that, you know, refugees have to take 
to safety and they become wayfarers, seafarers unwillingly. And you see people dying on, you know, on marked graves, children, young people, older people. It's just all of these things where we have to like keep talking. And there are lots of, you know, crisscrossing. Interesting you say about conversion therapy. Uh, we all know about that. What you might know um, is that I had aversion therapy. So when I was 18 years old, I was put into a mental institute to be cured. I was tortured and cured of being gay. Uh, I volunteered because it was against the law. It was a criminal offence. I went through that torture to appease my mother to appease myself because I wanted to be straight, whatever straight is, I wanted to be normal. And I was tortured for seven days. It's a very long story, which I won't bore you with now. But when I heard that aversion therapy and conversion therapy were running alongside and then aversion therapy was banned, now I also am against conversion therapy. So we run alongside each other, two totally different ages, but it's been a torturous life. And I am delighted to say I have been quite successful. I have a lovely lifestyle. Nobody has given me that. I have done it all myself, which is what you're doing right now. You mentioned the word refugee. I haven't mentioned it yet. You have. So black, gay and refugee. How much of a problem has that been for you in this country? It's, it's, it's a gift and sometimes I, I almost like question myself, is it a curse? Because how people feel, it comes with a lot of, you know, negative connotations, refugee, oh, you're one of them. And this is quoting someone, you know, um, and then obviously being gay in England is, is sadly not a utopia here, um, you know. So all of these things is coming together and I'm like, you know what, it's time to change the rhetoric and show that we it's kind of like this thing where I have to compensate and overcompensate. I'm seeing dualities from when I was younger. I have to take first position just to compensate for being gay. I have to be this comical person just so they would like me and be accepted. And I kind of like feel like it's almost in a way happening again, but this time it's, it's, it's different. I'm not, doing it for anyone to accept me or not. I just want to do what I know how to do best. And again, to that young person, to that young Joe that was there to say, yes, you're gay. Yes, you might be different. Yes, they can call you all of these things, but there's so much more to you. So are you going to like show us who you, who you are more than what the world has labeled you to be? Joe, what do you want people to take from this interview? I think it's the story of resilience the story of never giving up, no matter how many punches, and life has dealt all of us blows. I see someone and I say, they're walking miracles. I already know. I see myself as a walking miracle. I'm still standing, it's for a reason. And if you're still out there, you're still here for a reason. You have to find that and give us a show. Show us, kill us with kindness and and bring all of yourself together and show us. The job you've taken on is a ridiculously big job. It's basically changed the world because it's a hard, hard world we're living in and getting harder, sadly, with the wars and the situation. What advice would you give to parents, first of all, who've got gay, LGBT plus children, and then advice to the young people themselves? I think to parents, 
sadly, parenting and all of that, it doesn't come with a manual. It's quite, you know, an adverse job to take on another human being. And depending on how many you've got, they're doing amazing, but you can always do better, especially when you see the changes to your child. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're no longer themselves. You always have to be on top of things as a parent. And I know they're trying, but look out for your ch- your children because you just never know what they're going through. The world is a vicious place. We want safe spaces, especially in homes. Um, you know, we've seen bullying going on in school and children can be very, very vicious. But your child should not come back home and you add to their pain as a parent. You must be kind at all times to your child and look out for them because you're their first love. Um, so, yeah, I think that's my message to parents. Always, always lead with love. Um, regardless, your child is your child, regardless of any label, gay, straight, bi, whatever. Listen to them. Um, and the fact that we're only here for a while, I think we should make it count every single day. Um, and then to young people, dare to be yourself, you know. Um, obviously, read the environment. We want you to be safe. I do not want any... We're bleeding as a community, but we we cannot afford any more losses. Always stay safe. Um, but yeah, always, always bring yourself at all times. Will you ever go back to Nigeria? Of course. Of course. It's my home. My, my non-profit is called MIF underscore Nigeria. I, pr- I pride myself as a global citizen in my words, in my actions. Um, so I could, I could be anywhere. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a child of the world. But obviously it started in Nigeria and that is my first home. The wonderful thing is, Joel, you're starting to be recognised and winning a couple of awards. You must be pleased with that. Yeah, awards, awards, awards. Um, <laughs> I am. It, it feels good to be recognised. Um, but... I don't think I'd ever center my life on titles and awards and, you know, all of that. But obviously it does feel good to be recognized. But if anything, I think what has been especially rewarding is making a difference, however little. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Why not subscribe? You know it's free. So join us and tell your friends. It's great going on walks and doing whatever you want to do and then putting P-Price on. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 interviews. Join us. Subscribe. It's free.